0: Here's the big question this show answers. How do we leverage technology and human science to positively impact our personal and professional life? The tech human experience has the answer. Here's your host, Inc. 5000 tech founder, neuroscience junkie, and Navy SEAL wannabe, Javier Gadda. Hello, my fellow tech humans. Today's guest is a recognized disaster responder to high visibility technology problems, a podcast host, and has led critical communication teams during monumental events such as the 9-11 incident at the Pentagon. He's now helping enterprises build resilient, secure, and robust application infrastructures. Please welcome Bill Alderson. Thanks for your time today, Bill.
1: Thanks, Javier. Really good being with you today.
0: Yeah, good talking to you again. Let's, uh, let me share this stat with you, you know, to get us started off. So a study by cybersecurity ventures predicts that by the year 2025, cyber crime will cost the world $10.5 trillion annually, up from only $3 trillion in 2015. As a disaster recovery expert, what do you think are the key factors driving this increase and how can businesses adapt to protect themselves?
1: Well, first of all, the in, the organizations today are uh, focused on uh, de- detect and respond. Detect mm-hmm. and respond means that the hacker is already in. So that's when they are and where they're willing to spend money is on detect and respond, mainly because they can't really quantify prevention. So consequently, Mm -hmm. they're spending all the time and energy and money over there and not on prevention. So my belief is, is a greater emphasis on preventing those problems as opposed to, you know, finding them and then responding. Obviously, you need to respond. Obviously, you need to detect, but the first line of defense, in my opinion, and the best effort is at preventing.
0: Proactive prevention. So let's dive in. Today's topic is building resilient and secure application infrastructures in a world of cyber threats. In this episode, we'll explore the importance of disaster recovery planning the role of cybersecurity in business continuity, and Bill's experiences in guiding organizations through crisis. So, Bill, you have a you have an interesting background, and you know I'd really like to highlight some of your experiences in the real world in, for the audience. You know, from a a, a tech perspective, you know, wh- what do you see for the future of disaster recovery and cybersecurity? And, you know, maybe in some relation to what you've been through, a real world experience, if you can tie it to that somehow, you know, can you how can organizations really prepare for it?
1: First, by lessons learned from the past. Mm -hmm. Every time I go in and solve a critical problem or respond to a critical incident, the first thing that I do is I keep track of everything that we do and everything that happens during that incident so that we, at the end, can go back and take a look at, well, what lessons did we learn? And then from those lessons learned, we apply best practices to improve things like network and system documentation so that you can recover more rapidly. When I went to the Pentagon, immediately when I got there, armed guards brought us in, we came into a smoldering building, we were uh-huh. ushered down to the basement to uh start recovering from communications uh failures that the event occurred and i said let's get the network diagrams get them up on the wall and let's go about trying to solve the problems they looked at me and said well all of our documentation is online and the aircraft uh, des- uh you know destroyed the server that that information was on So the next step was to get, they put me in a huge war room and we got all the network engineers and application engineers and this war room literally had whiteboards on all sides. And they just started diagramming out the network from memory and then we'd look and reverse engineer by logging into router switches, servers, and other such systems firewalls and reverse engineering the network and diagramming it out. Well, had they printed out those diagrams, that would have prepared them better for the disaster recovery. So owning your architecture and having your system documented allows hundreds of people to operate and work on that system productively. When it's not documented for whatever reason, whether an aircraft destroys the network documentation or the system documentation, or it's just non-existent and you have one or two people who know everything, and those people become a bottleneck. So you can take 300 people in your IT organization and make them very productive by giving them the documentation that they need to solve. Every every day they get another trouble ticket, they get another problem, and they can resolve it. 300 people can work very productively instead of lining up at the two or three people's cubicle getting a now serving (laughs) number right walking in kissing the ring of the pontiff and getting the information about how their system is (laughs) documented and that's that's what i call architecture ownership it's a best (laughs) practice and i i learned that and basically tell people hey this is what you need to do to prepare for disaster
0: yeah and sometimes as humans we have to learn the hard way right uh it's 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 almost, it is scary to me, you know, we work with clients, um, and, and, you know, nobody's perfect, Like right? I'm not, we're not perfect either. Right. But, but it's, it's scary to me at, at how many organizations have lack of documentation, especially it's especially scary to me when it comes to security teams. So, you know, talking to a CISO or a high level technology leader, and them communicating to us that, you know, one of my biggest problems is we're not really documenting properly. And we have these highly paid consultants in here that are trying to make improvements, but they can't really make improvements because we don't have proper documentation. And, you know, we're building tools and handing them over to operations and they're not really getting handed over effectively and operations isn't really leveraging the technologies. And, um, you know, I, I, for me, I just think it's ex- exceptionally critical when you're talking about security teams, you know, you have to have that proper documentation. I love what you're talking about here as far as documentation and learning from past experiences. It's uh, it's uh, it makes me remember or or think of the, the phrase that a a smart man learns from his mistakes, but a wise man learns from the mistakes of others or from the mistakes already made. Right. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Yeah. Otherwise you're going to repeat those, those things. Now, in a large hospital situation uh, where they had, you know, five or six hospitals in the same regional area, clinics, et cetera, all connected in together to an Epic system that managed all of their medical uh, capabilities, mm-hmm. they basically had no network documentation that was accurate. Right. And so we went in and helped them reverse engineer, brought things up to date and we created a diagram that was basically about 10 feet long. And Hmm. the security folks came over to take a look at the diagram and they looked at me and they looked at that diagram and they said, this is the first time I've ever been able to see the potential holes in our architecture Mm -hmm. of where things can come in and where we need to protect. So if you don't have a diagram, you can't see visually and humans are visual, let's face it. We like diagrams. We like to put our finger on the diagram. And when you go to build a building, it's essential. You have to have it to modify the building. You have to have it to build the building. And so consequently, the same factors uh, apply there in, in order to be able to operate in that kind of environment. You have to have your your application flows you have to know where your systems whether they're in the cloud or in a colo or in a premise you have to know where things are and how and be able to visualize where things can get in and where you need to make certain that you're preparing for the worst
0: absolutely and what's the saying is it is a picture is greater than a thousand words something like that yes
1: well a picture picture is is greater Yeah, picture is is you know better than a thousand words. And and that's and that's true because we can rapidly assimilate and understand Mm -hmm. an architecture. A lot of companies that don't document their systems, they end up with a big problem because every time they bring in a new CISO or a new CIO or a new technology person, they try to make that network look like where they just came from so it ends up not being consistent. So I say document your system and when every mm-hmm. when every person comes in, every organization comes in, you train them on your architecture so that they don't ruin your architecture and there's some <laughs> some stability as as you yeah. go through. It's it's very powerful. It's it seems yeah. simple. People don't do it and they think they can just buy some software and click and it's done. No, it's It's a big job, you have to architect it just like an architect diagrams out uh, a multi-story building, all of the structure, the structural walls, all of the elements of that building and all the elements of a network, including security, firewalls, and other such things have to be designed in. And if your people can't visualize it, there, it takes a thousand words in order to explain what's wrong and they can't reverse and every trouble <laughs> ticket, they have to reverse engineer the entire network and it just gets crazy.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it's, it may, it may, I made me chuckle because I was thinking about like HR, right? Like orientations, like orientation is not only for HR right? It's, you know, it's our job as leaders to orient people to whatever department they're coming into, whether that be application infrastructure, security infrastructure, whatever. But, um, but that, that's, that's key to, to our methodology is, is using visuals, right? Having visuals so that people can visualize it and kind of see the big picture, but then backing it up with that documentation. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big neuroscience, you know, geek when it comes to that kind of stuff. So, in within neuroscience methodologies it, they say that the brain learns 60,000 times faster with visuals and so that uh, to us that visualization is huge with, with whatever we're doing
1: now the other element of that Javier is is albert einstein admittedly mm. one of the most brilliant people these young people who come to work for your organization they're young their minds are fast they can mm. remember everything because they don't have much in there quite yet and like <laughs> Albert Einstein said, he said, why should I commit to memory those things that I can write down or document and then mm-hmm. refer to? And that's yeah. what we're talking about. The architecture yeah. is too complex. You have to have details of how things are done, pulled out and put on paper so that you can understand and and change things or modify things and and not break something else while you're doing it. So... Yes. That's what I try and tell people. It's like, Hey, be like Einstein, be smart. Don't use yeah. your brain for memorization of all these minutia details, yeah. write it down, put it on paper so that you can visualize it, see it and rapidly assimilate and respond.
0: What allows you to uh, offload that data to so free up more processing power to solve problems and go about your day. Right? So absolutely. So So, Bill, what emerging technologies do you believe will have the most significant impact on disaster recovery, application infrastructure security and and/ or business continuity in the coming years?
1: Well, the number one thing today and has been for some number of years is backing up your data and sequestering it so that it when somebody does do a ransomware successfully, it doesn't uh, hit all of your backups. And sometimes it takes a year, right, before you recognize that some parts of your system have been compromised and they leave landmines in there so that they can get in later or what have you. So the the interesting thing is, is that having a layered backup capability so that if in three months you realize that part of your system was compromised three months ago, you're going to have to back up to three months ago and then figure out how to incrementally adjust things. So you need backups that go back some period of time to make sure that you're not essentially backing things up to what has been compromised or that what, what has been encrypted and that sort of thing. And speaking of encryption and ransomware, uh, one of the things that I believe has led to this economic, uh, criminal, uh, ecosystem is that, and, and, and I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I'm just realizing (laughs) that, you know, the, the U S intelligence agencies lost a lot of their lawful intercept tools, Mm. uh, because they themselves got compromised. So these tools that are the equivalent of digital nuclear weapons got in Mm. the hands of hackers. And that happened just prior to about 2015 in that particular area. And if you look at the incidence of ransomware and the cost of ransomware and the effectiveness of ransomware, right about 2015, the hockey stick went straight up and it hasn't stopped like you cited with those things. So we have now much smarter uh, criminals because the U.S. government's intel agencies lost the very tools that they were using for lawful intercept to go and break into criminal networks to to break them up and that sort of thing. But sadly, if you go back and look at all of the Washington Post articles, NPR articles, that sort of thing, New York Times articles on these intel agencies losing their own lawful intercept tools, these digital nuclear weapons, and then boom, it took off like a rocket and it mm. hasn't stopped
0: craziness. And you don't, you don't hear always. I don't hear about this on like mass media, right? Of course, they're not going to like,
1: well, it you know, actually is. The media, but... You just have to go look for it. Just put in, yeah. uh, NSA loses, uh, hacking tools and it's, the, it's, it's prolific. It's everywhere. But nobody Mm -hmm. has really looked at the statistics of ransomware and correlated it to that. And I happen to have just recently studied that and taken a look at it. And it is exactly that hockey stick takes off just around 2015, right after several CIA and NSA lost those tools that they were using legitimately and developed with billions of dollars of U.S. taxpayer money. But sadly, they too were subject to getting hacked themselves. And uh legislatively, they gave the NSA um a waiver so that they didn't have to hold themselves to the same level that all federal agencies did. And now they regret not, uh, you know, because we thought the smartest men in the room would make sure that they didn't get compromised. And sadly, they didn't impose upon those agencies the same federal rela- uh regulations to make sure that they battened down the hatches and didn't get compromised themselves so now it's history and what do we do we learn from those lessons but just like anything that's bad news in the past what do we do we learn from those lessons we see what happened and that's exactly what these agencies are doing now they're they're basically making certain that they don't lose any of those tools and they hold them much closer to the vest than they did, but the damage was done and the it's still accelerating today. And we just need to make sure that that stops.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, an increasingly scary topic, uh, you know, with everything that's going on in the evolution of technology and the threat landscape, it's, uh, it's definitely very going to be very interesting to see how everything unfolds. So, from a, I guess, a more human perspective, can you share your experience leading into the nine eleven Pentagon communications team, right? Like dealing in those with those issues, and really maybe help share some kind of like help us understand maybe what what were some of the mental challenges that you guys faced during the, uh, the incident or around the incident.
1: Yeah. Happy to do that. Obviously rushing into a smoldering building wasn't the first thing on our minds to do, but in, (laughs) you know, what happened, that's ends up what fire people do and people who are called to service, they have to go do those things. Yeah. And at that point in time, the people, you know, we were, that that's what I do right? I go in and and solve problems. But most people at the Pentagon, that's not what their job was. So they had to get up in the morning and decide to go and put themselves in harm's way. We didn't know what other shoe was going to drop at the time. So if you remember, now we know nothing else happened. But at the time, yeah. we didn't know there's going to be another aircraft or another shoe to drop or what have you. So those people who were working in the Pentagon were heroes to go back in and continue on, you know, in the in in the face of danger. So, you know, that's something that those people who worked there had to endure. Now, <clears throat> when we got there, the Pentagon was surrounded. They had us meet them at the perimeter and everybody had, you know, soldiers with guns all the way around the Pentagon, we met some of them and they uh, brought us in. And that was the beginning of a few weeks where we went in and, and started doing what we what I told you, we diagnosed those problems. Yeah. And now in in that situation, I didn't have this occurrence, but psychologically, when I go in and do critical problem resolution, and the problem is big, Sometimes it's because some security thing has happened, some performance issue has happened, something breaks. People who are responsible for that technology sometimes take it very seriously. So I've had to be a bit of a counselor and, and because when when a company has been down on a certain thing for like three months and it's affected their bottom line and all the people, and then they find out it was the firewall that you brought in. Now this person feels very responsible. So I had to take and say, look, this is just a symptom of our using technology and you need to Pull yourself out of the fact that okay, you recommended that firewall and it had this particular problem in it that got compromised. It doesn't mean that it's your personal fault. So we have to divorce ourselves of uh, that type of responsibility. Or you know, sometimes I've feared for some of the folks who ended up being their systems were implicated. So the network people call me in and say, "Hey, we've got this. We've got this application that's really bad." Would you go figure out what's wrong with this application? And then I find out that it's their network. Well, now I have to give them the bad news that the very people who are paying me or brought me in to, um, you know, show that this application was bad. It ended up being their network that was bad. So there's, there's some emotional things that go along with that because people get pretty serious about their job performance. They're afraid that they're yeah. going to have reprisals or get fired and that sort of thing. So you you have to keep an environment from the HR standpoint of making it safe for people to sometimes make mistakes. And that's a really good lesson learned. Some people think that if they make a mistake and it costs their company money that they're going to dock their paycheck. Right. So they haven't been <laughs> or worse. indicated that, you know, yes, you, you are hired to do the best job that you can and do diligence, mm-hmm. but you're not personally responsible for the losses of the company.
0: Yeah. That, you know, that's a, t- it's a tough one. What's coming to, to mind for me right now is, is from a security perspective and and I'm, and I'm big on, you know, I don't know if you've heard of Project Aristotle, but Google did a, a, a project called Project Aristotle, Is studying the best teams in the world, right? And what is it about the best teams? And they studied hundreds of teams. And the the this the one thing that was the biggest factor in having world-class teams is an environment of psychological safety, right? Yes. And so letting people to know like, look, you can speak up, you can own up to your mistakes, You're not going to get fired or whatever, right? Just give them the security around that. But when you talk about security teams, it's like their job is to secure that environment. But you still have to have that trust. You still have to have that, like ability to say, "Hey, we screwed up. Let's do better next time." And so I I could understand how a lot of security teams, a lot of security leaders, could be feel for fearful that if there's a big enough mistake, they're like, "Crap! Like that could that could mean my job, right?" and it could just be inevitable but but i would think that that's a tough dynamic any any thoughts on that
1: uh i wrote a review of uh psychology and security a book mm-hmm. on psychology and security and uh psychos uh i can't remember the exact name but it's on my linkedin profile one of the articles that i wrote and mm-hmm. in there they deal with some of those exact type of issues not just the psychology of the malignant mind that is bringing these, you know, trying to perpetrate, mm-hmm. but also the mind of the professionals who are trying to defend and mitigate the problems. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, book. I can't remember off the top of my head. I'm not prepared to talk about it, but it is an article that I wrote in a review And it was interesting because I got acquainted with all the authors. There were five or six authors of this thing. Mm -hmm. And I contacted them and said, hey, I wrote a review of your book. And it's like, wow, you're one of the five people who read it. (laughs) 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 So they were very grateful that I Mm -hmm. had acknowledged uh, them Mm -hmm. and by reviewing the book. It's an excellent book, and I would recommend it to anybody. You can find it on the articles that I've written on LinkedIn
0: nice nice appreciate that recommendation so you know as far as your experience in high pressure situations like 9-11 uh the ddos attack and military engagements that you've been involved in you know these if as far as your perspective on mental strength and endurance in crisis management you know what does that look like do you have a philosophy there?
1: Well, let's talk about one of the biggest denial of services that I responded to was the US stock markets. Went into one of the stock markets and there was a huge denial of service that was bringing not only this stock market, but all the stock markets. So once an attacker finds a vector that's successful, they start doing it to other people. And a You know, a a distributed denial of service means that the attackers take machines from around the internet and use them to attack a central, uh, situation like the stock markets. So in that, uh, they couldn't solve the problem readily, called me. I was on the West coast at the time I flew in and I'm a, I I go by the handle packetman007. So I, I look at packets. (laughs) I I look at the things that happen on the wire that are indisputable. So when I got there, I plugged in my analyzer and I saw that the packets that were coming in from all of these distributed things were using some of the same uh inf- the same tactics in each and every attempt. It's called a send attack. And it's part of the TCP three-way handshake. And so it just sends connect requests habitually to these guys. But the SYN attack was using the exact same sequence number for millions of these attacks. So what I did was, you know, I went in and diagnosed that almost immediately. And then I said, look, you just need to filter out that one sequence number and, and allow all the other sequence numbers. And there's, for instance, just, you know, there's 4 billion potential Sequence numbers. So killing one sequence number out of four billion is nothing, but that's what the hackers had written in the code and they reused it over and over. So we just put another firewall, which was basically a, uh, what I call a multi tier firewall architecture. And the first firewall stopped the bulk attack so that the second firewalls could execute the higher granularity of security rules. Because when the attack happened, it basically melted down all these firewalls because the firewalls have very granular rules and have to go through a lot of processing. So by taking out and having a multi tier and taking out in the first tier, all those attack, the bulk, what I call bulk attack, uh-huh. it allowed the, the, the firewalls to only have to deal with the standard data that went, that got through. And we, and we pulled that now. In every one of those instances, right, there's executives, there's technologists who like, again, they feel responsible or, you know, they couldn't solve it. And I've been doing this for 40 years, been looking at packets since 1980. It's pretty hard to have a problem that, you know, I, I, I certainly don't see the same problem over and over again, but you still have the same methods. So trying to help technologists understand that they are still viable. They're still very powerful. Uh, and it takes a team. So I come in with my focus forensic view and -hmm. then they take it to the next level. And as a team, we solve those problems together. And that's sometimes in the technical world, you know, there's a little bit of competition. So I've, I've had to figure out how to. Not make people upset because of what they weren't able to do before I got there. And that's a psychological, uh, element of doing critical problem resolution is making sure that people know, Hey, I'm, I'm a specialist in this particular little area. I know this really well, but you guys have all the other pieces to the puzzle and together we yeah. can work on it and solve it.
0: Yes. Yes. The, the human ego does play into too many things these days. (laughs) So just just quickly before we, you know, we start to kind of close out here because we're getting close on time. On that note, you're just talking about what makes a great team during disaster response and recovery in your opinion?
1: So the way that I do it, and I have some diagrams actually for this, and I've been promulgating this since the early 90s. I call them care teams and we take the best people out of the server team, the network team, the desktop team, the application team, the server, the uh, security team. And we create a team of the very best for critical problem resolution. And then we go and put that team together and they can reach back into their organizations to help solve the problem. And we don't have to to have just one silo alone trying to solve a problem. So if application people are the only ones trying to solve the application problem, maybe there's some server component, platform component, cloud component, or network component that is added to that. And so we need a cross-platform, cross-technology set of people to be able to address those problems. So back into the network documentation area. When we yeah. go into to build a, a tiger team to address their network documentation problems and, and bring that to uh, fruition, people think you can't do it. it. We can never get this done. It's just too big. It's too complex. I've gone into very large institutions, big oil companies, railroads, uh, r- mass transit organizations, some of the biggest in the world. We can diagram those out in a matter of three to five weeks, but that's because we have good methods and we know how to bring the right people from all the silos together. The best documenters, those are the ones who help us with documentations. The best troubleshooters, those are the ones who help us with critical problem resolution. And the same goes for metrics teams people who measure the metrics and tell us what the numbers are for all the performance issues and that sort of thing. So whether it's metrics, network documentation or uh or 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 something of that nature, we pull those teams together and we create a team and I call one of those teams for documentation the Docunet team, right? Huh. Or the <laughs> metrics team. And so and then each one of those teams is enduring you know, I'm gone, but they keep those teams. They charter those teams and then those teams. And that is a very powerful element of building expertise in your organization is not trying to do it with a bunch of people who don't know anything. You bring somebody like me and I don't know their environment, but yeah. I know the technologies and then they assemble the best people within each from all the technology areas and all the silos so that we can work as a team and bring those uh, solutions to the organization very fast.
0: Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you come in and you have those key players that can orient you to the environment. They understand the historical data. They understand where everything's at, all that good stuff. And then you work together as like a special forces unit to attack the problem. Yeah, I love that. That's so awesome. that's
1: the command and control. Uh, you know, that's kind of the role that I play is, is the centralized command and control. And believe mm-hmm. me, uh, when we go in to solve these problems, there's always people wanting to know, did you find it yet? Did you find it yet? Did you find <laughs> it yet? And so I have to there yet? the technology people from <laughs> continual statusing. Now, it we do have to give a status. Usually we give a status once a day. Mm-hmm. And then you can Because sometimes I've learned that, oh, Eureka, we found it. And I've said it too quickly. And then it didn't come to fruition and people lose confidence in you. So you have to very carefully once a day give the status. Under promise and over deliver is a culture that is really powerful. And especially within a team. Under promise, over deliver, everybody's happy in the end.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Love that. Uh, Love that approach for sure. Last quick question here, Bill. So what technologies does the world need that doesn't exist yet for better disaster recovery and cybersecurity?
1: Okay. I have just written in the last couple of years, two patents in the security area. These two patents have to deal with how far data can be sent. And what we do is we limit uh, what's called packet lifetime, which is called a hop count or time to live. How long does a packet get to live in the internet? Well, you send a packet out into the internet and it goes through so many routers and eventually it's gonna be expunged from the network when the, when the hop count goes to zero or when the packet lifetime is gone. That technology and that capability, for instance, if you have an Oracle database server in the data center and it has a packet lifetime to go through 255 routers, it can go to North Korea, Russia, China right now, unless there's a perfect firewall. Is there a perfect firewall? We haven't seen one yet. So what we do is we say, look, this Oracle database should not go more than four routers or five routers but it certainly should not have a packet lifetime of 255 routers. You're just asking for trouble because there isn't any such thing as a perfect firewall. So that's the kind of prevention technology that the military asked me to develop and I responded and wrote these patents and and limiting how far packets can travel on the network, I believe is something that's very powerful. In fact, the guy who invented, truly invented the internet, his name is Vinton Cerf. He looked at our technology. He's the one who put the packet lifetime into the packets so that packets would go out and they would die after they had lived their packet lifetime. Otherwise those packets would spin around in the internet forever. Right. So he, yeah, yeah. he put those, those capabilities in. So we just simply use that capability to limit how far data can travel. That I believe is is going to be one of the things that you can do to prevent your key data in an Oracle database from going out of your data center. Very powerful.
0: Yeah. That's like the packet self-destruct. It mechanism. is exactly.
1: That's exactly <laughs> what it is. I
0: love that. Thanks for sharing that, Bill. So anybody listening, if you want to have if, anybody listening, if you have some sort not if you want to have some sort, but if you have some sort of a critical IT security or performance issue that you could use some help with, be sure to reach out to Bill Alderson. And, uh, you know, how can people reach you, Bill? Uh,
1: The best website to reach me on is uh, Cogent.management. No.com, just Cogent.management. You can find me there. And of course, on my LinkedIn profile, which you're welcome to share with folks.
0: Perfect, Bill. Thanks for joining us today and sharing your insights. Really always great talking to you. And, uh, you know, listeners also be sure to connect with Bill on LinkedIn. His handle is Bill Alderson. So it's linkedin.com slash in slash Bill, B-I-L-L-A-L-D-E-R-S-O-N forward slash And we will have website links and social media handles in the show description for your convenience. To recap, in today's episode, we discussed Bill's experience in guiding organizations through security crises and the mental challenges that he faced during events like 9-11 and military engagements. This information is only valuable if you use it to take some sort of action or you put it into action. So to make sure you benefit from this episode, take a moment to reflect and write down how your own mental resilience shows up in times of stress or some sort of a breach scenario. And, you know, use this to help you to respond effectively and potentially proactively get ahead of problems or have a plan to get ahead of problems before they happen. Last but not least, don't forget to help your fellow tech humans. Share this podcast and follow me on LinkedIn at javiergeta 360 See you next time on The Tech Human Experience. The Tech Human Experience.